0: murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are True Law Stories, brought to you by videocasestory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. Welcome back to True Law Stories, I am Garlick, and today we're gonna talk about adoptions and guardianships and Britney Spears. And craziness with uh, the amazing adoption and guardianship and general family attorney Mary Kay Wimsett out of Gainesville, Florida. Mary Kay, thanks for being on.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Mary Kay was on my original podcast, one of the first guests, talking about gay adoption was first allowed in Florida. That was a while ago, and, it's pr- and things have things have been crazy since. And today we're going to talk about you know some heartwarming adoptions, how guardianships help young people because i think there's you know people don't know about these things unless until they get involved in it i mean i've personally been involved in the whole guardianship stuff and people don't realize how important they are and especially i think they we discount mental health a lot we you know it's and people's health and and um so before we get started and talking about crazy stories about crazy things tell us a little bit about yourself and uh your practice
1: so i am um a sole practitioner in Gainesville, florida I um, have lived in Gainesville for a long time, grew up here and then escaped for undergrad and then um, also left after law school, never thought I would end up raising uh, my family here. But once my husband and I started having children and my um, parents offered to help take care of them and kind of was a perfect storm and my husband had a job opportunity at the University of Florida. So we moved back to Gainesville and have been here ever since, so since 2002. So um, about, oh gosh, let's see, 15 years ago, um, I started my own firm. I had been working in the public sector as a public defender and then um, had transitioned to a guardian ad litem attorney, working in the second circuit back in the day when the guardian ad litem attorneys were actually under the judges, which is interesting. But, um, and I covered a whole judicial circuit. So I had, I covered six counties, had about, I don't know, Eight hundred cases um, was in court all day long, every day. But I, it was a great job. But I um, transitioned to Gainesville, and we could talk about the, how the Guardian Lighten program has changed and grown over the years for an entire podcast. But we won't do that today. But, um,
0: <laughs> but what is a Guardian lightum Because some people, I mean, a lot of people listening to this don't know what a Guardian Lighten is.
1: Yeah, and there is a distinction between a um, a Guardian Lighten and a Guardian ship. So we're going to talk about different types of guardianships too today. So a guardian ad litem is appointed by the court to make a recommendation for whoever they've been appointed to as to what's in their best interest. So um, the term ad litem means you're making, um, uh, you're advocating for best interest. So you see guardian ad litem, there's a statewide program in Florida called the guardian ad litem program. It's called CASA, which is... um, uh, court-appointed special advocate in a lot of other states. So if any of you aren't in Florida, if you've heard of CASA, it's the same thing basically as the guardian ad litem program, which is a statewide program where a volunteer um, is appointed to represent a, a child in foster care. And there's an attorney that also works with that volunteer. So I was the attorney for the program um, for the local program. And then I still help the statewide program with special projects and that kind of thing, just because I've been doing this forever. Um, So, um, But then there are ad litems appointed actually also in guardianship cases. So guardianship cases are probate proceedings where um, uh, someone is incapacitated or developmentally disabled. And so they need some assistance or help with taking care of their affairs. So, um, but before, unlike, I told you we were going to talk about Britney Spears, some, but um, you know, in the Britney Spears case, it's sort of unclear. And and I, I'll be honest, I have not done a deep dive into the actual specifics of the case. I've just read, you know, the general like media reporting on it. So I would be very curious to actually look at the court file because in Florida, if you object to a guardianship, well, you're appointed in ad litem. Everyone's appointed in ad litem. If you object to the guardianship. Um, Your ad litem, you know, makes that known to the court. Um, You know, there are, um, there's due process for folks where uh, guardianship is being um, sought. There's an exam committee that's appointed. If you don't have a disability, now, if there's, if you have a developmental disability and there's a carve out for special disabilities like autism, CP, Prader-Willi, those special um, disabilities, if you don't have one of those disabilities, then you have to, Um, whoever's seeking to get the guardianship against you has to prove in court um, that you're incapacitated and they have to do that through an exam committee which is composed of there has to be at least one MD on the committee one medical doctor and then it's a combination of like a psychologist a social worker a nurse but three professionals mental health professionals who do an evaluation and do a report and then there's a hearing on those reports so it's not easy to get a guardianship if the um, person, the alleged incapacitated person uh, objects to it and is even a little bit capacitated. So um, interesting to me, I don't know, again, any I don't know the details of how Brittany, and maybe you do um, the specifics, I <laughs> but I wonder, um, now the laws are different in every state, Certainly. So in California, I think that's where the guardianship was established. Maybe it's different. But in Florida, you cannot unilaterally obtain a guardianship over someone and take control over all their assets without their objection being heard and out there being a evidentiary hearing and, you know, a bunch of things have to happen before that's put in place. But okay, I've already digressed off the topic. But so, you are appointed in ad litem because there are certainly plenty of individuals where a guardianship is being sought, where they don't agree. Like I have um, a case right now where the gentleman doesn't agree, but he is absolutely mentally ill. I mean, he's diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. And then he also happens to have um, a medical diagnosis, which Um, Is affecting his brain, and so he is truly, you know, clinically insane. So, I have to object because, and I represent him. I get, I do both types sides of those cases. So, I represent a lot of um, alleged incapacity, and then I also represent the guardians in a lot of the cases. So, but um, I have to object on his behalf um, because. Uh, you know, because he's objecting. But, um, you know, and what that looks like is just making sure that the system is doing, is working as it should. So making sure that the exam committee has met with him, making sure that their reports are thorough, you know, just, again, ensuring that there's due process. Um, but, I, you know, I've had some really interesting ones where, like, I represented an an older gentleman who was very... Um, did not have Alzheimer's, was living alone into his nineties, managed his affairs. Um, but he had started to slip cognitive delay. And there's, you know, there's lots of stuff now about how that frontal, you know, that the, as our brain, as we age and our brain, um, become, we become more and more susceptible to exploitation because our brain doesn't want to let us acknowledge that someone that we like or care about could be taken advantage of us. So, um, you know, unfortunately, you do see cases where like this gentleman was, he was borderline incapacitated, but, he, you know, maybe we could have won the guardianship, you know, fought the guardianship successfully, but he was clearly being exploited. He had a very young um, woman caretaker who, um had and you know met him like in the lobby of a doctor's office, had inserted herself into his life, was, you know, before he knew it, the family knew it. She was living with him, and it moved in her friend, her friend, who had a horrible criminal record um, and her kids. Uh, you know, so like, all of a sudden five people were living with this man. He was paying for all their bills. Um, you know, so, you know, without the guardianship, you know, he would have continued to be exploited and um, you know, all his funds would have been depleted. They had spent over a million dollars of his money within a year. So um, with the guardianship, his family was able to, and initially he objected to the guardianship and we had to have a hearing, it was very contentious. Um, But eventually he realized, you know, he came around and we had to get law enforcement involved to press charges against the woman but he did eventually come around moved into um a, a condo near his daughter down in south florida and is you know and is doing is so much happier so much healthier like doing really well cuz he has family that's helping to take care of him instead of these people that were taking advantage of him so Anyway, so that's, I,
0: I, <laughs> again, <laughs> you were
1: like uh, you were like, what are we going to talk about, Mary Kay? I'm like, I don't know, I, wherever my brain goes.
0: Um, but
1: so, so you see ad litems in those cases. You also see ad litems um, actually in, like, injury lawsuits where children have been injured. So you'll see the court will appoint an ad litem to represent the interests of the child. So to make sure, like, for example, that the settlement is fair. So, um, you know, that the parents have instead of just like settling so they could get quick. And then also making sure that the cash is put, the money is put into like an annuity or a special needs trust, wherever it needs to go so that the money is protected. You know, that's just something we don't think about. But like if a child's in an accident and they get money, um, you know the system does not trust parents to spend that money in the best interest of the child. So Mm. there's an ad litem that's appointed to make sure, you know, that all those, and and most families do. I mean, it's very, very unusual that there's actually a legitimate concern, but every now and then, you know, there can be. So and the court certainly doesn't want to let the money, um, you know, be squandered. So,
0: yeah. and, And I mean, this is interesting things that people don't think about until they need them. And then it's generally an emergency, isn't it?
1: Right, right.
0: And it's, it's um, you know, we don't think about guardianships, but I mean, there's, it, it seems to, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about it. It seems that it comes up, you know, especially a lot in parents, but then it, like you were talking about, it comes up in younger people too. You, you were We were talking about a case with a younger person, right? And, and uh, I mean, because a lot of the, when we talk about homeless and things like that, most of those people have some sort of mental issue, mental disability, and they're just yeah. not being taken care of. Yeah. Um, it's not like this, you know, people think it's this voluntary thing. And we really find that most of the, I mean, I saw, you know, in what, 70 to 80% of the people in our prison system have uh, some sort of mental issue, you know, right. mental disease. Um, and it leads to this stuff, but guardianships can help protect them. Right. I mean, that's probably right. what was going on. Originally the idea behind Brittany having a guardianship was to protect right. her, um, And so you were talking about, you know, but it can help a lot. It can transform people's lives, can it?
1: Yes. Like I had a, I have been working with a family for a number of years where they, um, the young man went into the military out of high school, um, was in the military for, and they, we don't know what happened in the military. Something happened in the military. He had some sort of, we don't know if it was a, um, like a psychotic break or, you know, you never know, maybe he used, um, you know, drugs that he shouldn't have used, or he had some sort of, he was, he never served overseas. Like he never went into war. He was always like, you know, stationed in the United States, but you never know. I mean, that can be a pretty intense environment. There was some sort of trauma, something happened where he had a break and he, um, or, you know, he, um, you know, paranoid schizophrenia is, schizophrenia is fascinating illness. Um, and, you know, some people, they don't know, like, what triggers... Some people, you know, are just predisposed. They're going to... If they have the genes, they're you know, it's coming. But then they think, too, that some people can be... And I'm not, of course, an expert. On this. I've just heard a lot of psychologists and doctors talk about it. But um, some people can have, like, a triggering event that causes them to become, you know, a paranoid schizophrenic. So he... Um, started developing symptoms of schizophrenia
0: what are some of the symptoms
1: um paranoia delusional um he thought that he had he thought that the military had, and this is very apparently really common and i've seen this in a couple of um paranoid schizophrenics where he thought he had something implanted the military had implanted something in his jaw um and he just, you know, the family kept trying to get him help, but part of the illness too is not, you know, admitting that you not denying the illness is part of the illness. So um, he um, he continued to just decompose to the point where he was homeless. Um, he was living um, basically. He had a storage unit that he had all he had all this paperwork. That he was convinced showed how the military was tracking him and you know all these things that have been happening to him um and he kept it in a storage unit and his family was very loving very wealthy family that would provide you know would wanted to buy him a house you know whatever but he wanted to live this way he lived like in his car or slept in the storage unit um you know he would be seen wandering around town um, but he also you know he um he exercised He um, looked healthy. He was very attractive. So, like, if you were sitting next to him, like, or in line next to him at the grocery store, you would never know. Like, he totally could keep it together. Um, He came to the hearing for the guardianship, you know, in a suit, um, understood, like, that it was serious. You know, he presented, he was very polite to everyone. But then as soon as we got into the hearing, and I represented the family trying to get him help, trying to get the guardianship. Um, Once we started the hearing, you know, as soon as I started asking him questions, he just started talking about the devices implanted in him, how they were listening to him, how his family had um, stolen his money when he didn't have any. I mean, the family was the ones that had the money, you know, so this whole, you know, it was a, and the judge, it was interesting in that hearing, the judge let him, we just kind of let him talk for a while because he made his, own. you know, he made my case just by his own you know, statements. And, and of course there was an exam committee we had, there was a doctor, um, a, PhD, a PhD and a, a doctor, a nursing doctorate, um, a doctorate in nursing. I don't, she's a doctor, but she's a nurse. So I don't know, doctor. <laughs>
0: yeah. We'll figure it out later.
1: A specialist, um, a specialist. who all examined him and diagnosed him, you know, said absolutely. So anyways, the result, and that was a guardianship where, He did not want the guardianship. You know, he had an attorney that represented him. We had to have a big hearing. Um, We ended up getting the guardianship in place. We were able to get his medication to be ordered through the court. You know, with schizophrenia, you can get a shot um, like once a month and it does a pretty good job of, not for everyone. So we got lucky that the medication that we, the first med they tried worked and um you know and now he's like living in his own apartment he interacts with his family all the time he's dating he's been dating some people he goes to the gym every day like he's living this super healthy lifestyle you know volunteers he's getting his real estate license like he's totally been able to um come so far from where he was Um, and if we hadn't had the guardianship he would have never if we were not able to get the medication ordered he would still he'd probably be dead by now because he was on a path you know where and just being homeless is very you know it's very dangerous Um, you know and especially now with COVID I mean he wouldn't be vaccinated you know all of those things Um, you know it's just very um, very scary to think what would have happened and now he's like just doing so well, so everyone thinks of guardianships as this negative thing, but they really can um, they really can help help people. The, the The problem is, though, as a society, something that people don't realize is they're really expensive. So the family has to have money to get it set up, and then you have to have a family member that's willing to do it. If you don't have a family member that's willing to do it, there's there are professional guardians, but they charge by the hour that's very expensive. We have a public guardian, but they're so underfunded and overwhelmed. They only represent folks for the most part who um are in like the state hospitals, like in uh, you know, severely handicapped, severely mentally ill that are um in an institution where they have no one at all to take care of them. So, you know, they've had to like triage and take care of those folks where there's no one, um, but you know, anyone who's, you know, higher functioning and are not, and not committed to an institution, it's very difficult to find. Um, and usually they, you know, they very difficult to find guardians because usually they burn bridges. Usually the family is like done or the family just can't afford to set it up. You have to pay for, you know, all these things to get the guardianship set up. So it's just very, um, it's not ideal. Um, but there, but there also is, again, I think it right now, especially because, and I, um, I can't think of her name, but there's been a lot of press and she was from Orlando. So I'm sure you've heard that, that guard professional guardian.
0: Yeah. Uh, she was, uh, three doors down from her office.
1: Okay. So um, <laughs> she, um, she kind of, she ruined it for a lot of people, um, by her actions, but most, I mean, I've worked with many many professional guardians over the years and none of them have done anything, have never acted in any way shape or form in any way close to what she did. And also, I guess maybe I'm fortunate that I'm in a part of the state where we have um, you know, a pretty small population and um so we're able to Really, you know, the judges really look at the cases. And, and I think I'm also fortunate that my judges, my judiciary has prioritized these types of cases. So there's actually a staff for the court that looks very closely at them. You know, we do, there's an accounting that has to be filed. They count every penny. Like, you know, it would be very difficult um, in my circuit for someone to get away with, um, you know, the things that she did. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there unfortunately there is, there are bad, you know, apples and every, everywhere.
0: You're going to be able to find the person, right? You're always going to be able to find, I mean, when you have thousands of pounds, thousands of people doing stuff, there's going to be one bad person or two bad people. That doesn't mean we should stop doing it. (laughs) Right.
1: right. But she, that case has really given a lot of fuel to the anti guardianship, you know, advocates,
0: but But it's a necessary tool, isn't it? I mean, it it is because there's a lot of people that just can't take care of themselves. And, and, you know, it's like, what's the other option? Just let them out in the streets. Right. Um, but look, I mean, so that was a happy ending to a a tough thing and you, you know, but you do a lot of adoptions too. Right. And what do people not get about adoptions? What are people's misconceptions about it?
1: Well, and I think I even had this misconception about adoption when I first started. It'd be fun to go back and look at those videos that you took of me like 15 years ago. Um, (laughs) So um, I remember, too, it's just you really are a genius ahead of your time. I remember you made me do those videos and I was like, this is, why are we doing this? Who looks at the internet? You know, Um, (laughs) what is, I don't want to be on Facebook. That seems dumb. Um, although I was right about that part, but uh, you think about, um, it all being happy and pretty babies and all these things, but you know, there is still that loss of, um, a parent, you know, placing their child for adoption or a parent losing their rights because they're unable to care for a child. Um, you know, and, and then the child, you know, the, those, that child growing up with so much love from the adoptive family, but always, there will always be that, that piece, that part of their story. So, you know, I do think we're doing a much better job in the adoption world. Of you know, back in the day, we used to, even when I first started, closed adoptions were a lot more common, where you didn't tell the kid they were adopted till they were like an adult, um, or you had no contact, no information about the birth family. So um, now most adoptions are pretty open. So you know, in the sense that you at least know information about each other. Like the birth mom picks the family from a book which is, and I'm, you know, there's, there's basically like to, there's three different kind of types of adoptions essentially. And the most common adoption are kids that are adopted through the dependency system, foster care system. Those kids um, are adopted because their parents, their right, parents' rights were terminated because there was abuse, abandonment, or neglect. So in those cases, of course, there typically are not open adoptions, but every now and then there can be because in dependency cases, parents, don't just have their kids taken away from them. They are given a case plan where they have the opportunity to get services and potentially reunify with their kids. Part of that process is usually having visitation. So I do have cases where the foster parents um, develop a relationship with the birth parents and the foster parents end up adopting and they end up having an open adoption with the birth parents. So that does happen. but so foster parents, the, the, the majority of kids that are adopted in Florida are adopted from the foster care system. The next biggest chunk of kids that are adopted are relative or step parent adoptions. So grandparents, aunts, uncles, folks that are usually have been taking care of the child for a while, or something happens where the parents pass, or the parents you know have a you know really the only families that go into the dependency system now are the cases that are really horrible like horrific abuse, substance abuse, you know, that kind of thing. There's a a whole other sector of people where, you know, kids have a drug problem, but they're getting some help. You know, if a child's protected so the parent, has a drug problem or a mental health problem, if they place the child with a relative, that child's not going to end up in the foster care system. That's just the relatives are just like, okay, I'm taking care of the kid. They can get some benefits depending on their income. Um, But there's just thousands of children that are in those type of placements where the state isn't involved and they're living with, you know, relatives um, or step, and then step parents, lots of step parents where, you know, the parent has remarried and the new spouse wants to adopt the child. So um, that's the next kind of bulk. So I would say probably, um, and I don't know, there's probably data somewhere, but this is just based on what I see. I'm at every adoption docket. What I see generally, I would say 70, 60 to 70 of the cases are, um, and now remember, I'm, I'm a lawyer, so I'm not good at math. But <laughs>
0: 60 to
1: 70 are um, foster care, and then you're looking at maybe another 20 or so, 20 to 30% are family by family. I mean, either relatives or step-parent. And then the last, the smallest percentage are the infant ado- or private adoption. So, what like the Juno situation, you know, what everyone thinks about, like the young birth mom having a baby and placing the baby for adoption. Yeah. So, that's actually like the smallest segment. But,
0: Interesting. We all yeah. think that that's like, that's at, all of adoption is that, right?
1: Right. But in terms of the number of kids that are adopted, it's actually pretty small. But, you know, the foster care piece of it, though, that's not a business. Like those kids. You know, the, the those kids, their place for adopted and adopted through the state system. Where so you might, I mean, part of the reason why you see more about private adoption is because it is more of an in, it's an industry. You know, it's um, you know, so there's agencies and attorneys, um, you know, that are facilitating those adoptions.
0: So gotcha. Um, and so you were going to talk a little bit about the birth mothers and you know, and some of the interesting cases there because that's that's got to be tough and also. Just an unusual situation around, especially when you consider open adoption.
1: Yes, you know, it's um, it's interesting because my oldest daughter, who was supposed to go to college last year and ended up staying um, home because she didn't want to go to school remotely, um, and she worked for me as my receptionist. And she said to me after, like, a couple months of work, she said, Mom, I didn't realize you're totally a counselor and a therapist, <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> attorney and counselor at law um and so you do spend uh, you know you spend time working with the birth moms i mean that but I'll, that's my favorite part honestly of the process is getting to know the families, you know assuring the families through the process um working with the birth moms you of course want to um you know, I never want to be an adoption where involved in an adoption where the birth mom feels pressured. Um, but it is, you know, it's a difficult situation because usually um, it is very difficult still, though, to execute the paperwork. Even though the birth mom wants to place the child for adoption, oftentimes it's still a very like stressful and emotional time for them. So, uh, you know, I try and be supportive, of course, through of them through the process and of the adoptive family in Florida. And attorneys represent typically um, the adoptive family or the adoption entity. And then um, birth parents do not have their own attorney. So some states require birth parents to have their own attorney, but not in Florida. So and of course, I have an ethical obligation to always tell a birth parent what the law is, the truth, you know, all of those things. Um, but, you know, I also just feel like a higher calling to. um You know, I only want to facilitate adoption where a birth mom feels like this, you know, she's making the right decision, but it doesn't mean it's an easy decision. It's still a very hard decision. And, you know, I think too, a big myth in adoption is that birth moms are, you know, like Juno, they're not high school students, straight A high school, super smart high school students. I mean, most women who are seeking to place their children for adoption are doing that because they can't, for some reason, raise a child on their own be it, um, you know, financial pressures, um, uh, substance abuse problems, mental health problems, um, young. But, I, you know, I've done, I've worked with birth moms that are older. I mean, have birth moms in their 40s who, you know, accidentally pregnant and already, you know, raise their kids who are just like, I financially cannot raise another child. Many women who don't intend to get pregnant and then don't find out they're pregnant, you know, until it's too late for them to terminate the pregnancy, you know, they find out when they're 22 weeks or something. So they keep the pregnancy. Um, many of them not in great relationships, either with their family or the father of the baby, you know, very like high stress situations, um, many of the time, most of the time I would say. So try and help those women get into counseling so they can get some support, um, through that process. And, um, so that they're prepared too, because I think, you know, they, um, every, my job is to help everyone be prepared for the birth and for the adoption process to help that go as smooth as it possibly can. So I think it's, you know, it'd be terrible to lie to a birth mom and say, you're going to feel so great when you have the baby and signing the paperwork's just going to be a breeze. Like I, you know, I don't, um, I think that would make the process much worse um you know than trying to prepare them for that that part is going to be you know can be emotionally very difficult
0: and so i mean we were talking before about a few of the stories that you had
1: yeah so um one of my most favorite birth moms that i'm looking you can't see here but i have like a board where i have all pictures and notes and letters and everyone this is for when i'm working like at eight o'clock at night and i'm really tired i can look up and be inspired <laughs>
0: but, um, <laughs> i'm looking at her her
1: graduation um invitation from uf she was a young woman um she was i think 18 um she was she knew she loved the father very much but he was very immature in ways like he was a huge video gamer Um, they both were students at Santa Fe, which is the community college here, but he just was not, she just knew they were not in a place where they could, um, raise a child. Um, and they struggled. They, you know, at first they were going to try and raise a baby. And then she just decided that there was no way. But, um, and I remember when she came to meet with me in my office, she rode her bike to my office, um, which was a couple miles away. And we were just talking generally about like what, you know, what, just about her life and things like that. Um, And she told me how she worked at, um, she rode her bike to school and then she rode her bike. She worked at a restaurant called Sonny's on Archer Road here in Gainesville, which is pretty far from her apartment. Um, And it was, you know, hot in the summer. She was riding her bike to work pregnant. Um, But through the adoption, we were able, the family was able to help her. Um, you know, pay for transportation, helped pay for her, and adoption allows for birth mom expenses. So we were able to help with her rent. We were able to help with her food. We were able to help with transportation. We were able to help with, uh, and and what happened is when when we were able to help with food and housing, for example, she was able to save her money from working at settings and then she was able to buy a car, you know, and then we paid for gas and things like that. So um, really, really transformed her life, you know, and she um, said to me, you know, when she sent me the graduation invitation, which I think was like four or five years after she had the child, um, you know, that without the adoption, I would have never been able to get on my feet financially. I mean, it just truly made a tremendous impact in her life, um, in terms of helping her be able to move forward. And she, and what an amazing, you know. gift for the family too. I mean, the family, um, you know, to, um, you know, to have a child after struggling with infertility and all of, you know, many, most of the families that are adopting have, um, you know, for, for many reasons, not, not been able to have children on their own. So, and this family, um, had been through that. So for them to have also this incredible gift of a child, um, you know, is really just, just amazing. Like that's like your dream adoption story. Um, not every birth mom is able to go on and graduate from the university of Florida, but, um, you know, many of them, I think are able, the adoption process does help them, um, you know, get through the pregnancy. Cause oftentimes, you know, a lot of them are working at jobs where they lose their job once they're pregnant. Um, mm. you know, that kind of thing. So, I, I mean, it really can, um, greatly improve, the life, the life of the birth mother. So, um, anyways, that's one of my favorite happy stories of adoption.
0: Um, yeah. And there's lots of families out there too, that are, that want to have children, right. And just can't, right. And and this adds to their life and improves their life. And I mean, it's, it's amazing stories and that's, yeah. that's fantastic.
1: Definitely more families for sure. There are many more families that are waiting to adopt, than babies that are available. Um, so birth parents really get to pick whatever type of family they want. So, you know, we started out by talking about same sex couples. And I remember, you know, that used to be a big deal. <laughs> and now it's like, yeah, like half my caseload, you know, or same sex couples. So it is, it's fascinating to see how, um, how quickly, um, We've caught up on like on that issue Um, specifically. I think it's pretty fascinating to see as as a society how quickly we've come around on that concept. I mean, when I first was practicing, I remember when I was working for the Guardian of Lighten program, and I visited a foster parent who was this amazing foster parent, and you know, he. I, I mean, I didn't ask him because it was very clear that we didn't want to know if he was gay, but it was. Obvious to me that he was gay, but nobody, we never acknowledged it. We never asked him because if he had been, if he had identified as gay, he would not have been able to be a foster parent. And he, I've kept up with him over the years and um, he's fostered. I think now, I think he was up to 12 kids like that have gone on to go to college, have these amazing lives. And these are all kids in foster care that, you know, no one else um, wanted to take care of. So, um, it's, I'm so glad Florida has at least, I mean, I know Florida, we kind of are behind, um, behind the mark on some things, but I'm very glad on that issue, especially we've really through legal advocacy have been able to make like a huge difference, I think.
0: Yeah. And I mean, this is the, you know, and this is what I like about law stories is that you, we, you know, we we see a lot of the stuff on TV, like the really harsh or like criminals or stuff, but really the law can help transform people's lives in a positive way. Like you've talked about today and, and it's fantastic. It's really cool uh, to do that. And uh, so if someone want, need, is looking for adoption in Florida or guardianship in Florida, how do they get in touch with you?
1: Okay, so caveat, if it's a guardianship, you want an attorney that practices in the area where you're going to file the guardianship. So while I would love to do them everywhere, that would be horrible advice for me to give you to hire. So you want to hire someone who practices a lot in the area where the guardianship needs to be filed and it needs to be filed in the county where the alleged incapacitated person lives or disabled person lives. Um so and I am in the 8th circuit and the 3rd circuit. Generally, I do some cases in the 7th and the 5th, but I'm North Central Florida basically in the 5th circuit. So um you can always call and we can um talk to you about where um you know if we're able to help you or not. Um I have a website, um adoptionlawfl.com. I'm sure you will put it up in the yeah, comments. we will put that, all
0: that in the comments um, down below.
1: And then and then for adoptions, we do those all over the country actually, but we, um, I mean, we help families from all over the country, but we, um, in terms of birth mothers in Florida. So the way the laws work is you want an attorney generally wherever the baby's going to be born. So, um, and, and then for foster care adoptions, generally you want an attorney in the area. It's kind of like the same with guardianships. You want someone who knows all the players knows the system. So, um, you know, you want someone kind of in the area, but for private placements, like for birth parents or for adoptive families, we work with families all over the state.
0: That's fantastic. And so we'll put the website, we'll put a link and call Mary Kay, she's pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> She'll talk- tell...
1: will talk to you all day long.
0: <laughs> well, Mary Kay, thank you so much. We'll make sure to put a link to, the, to her website down below. Put comments down below if you have any comments. Um, you know, share your stories down below of guardianships and adoptions, especially if you're watching this on YouTube. But Mary Kay, thank you so much for being on True Law Stories.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And thank you all for taking Mary Kay on your journey. It's been Ian Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by videocasestory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more.